0: So, um, I've always, this is another great nerdy snippet about me, I've always really been into magic, like sleight of hand, like magic tricks and stuff, That's so dumb, I already hear the laughter, it's fine. I can also juggle, I can like juggle pins and all kind of very weird things that I was into as a kid, um, so, yeah, someday, Maybe. Uh, but I, so we used to go, there was this, there was this plaza near where I grew up that was kind of far away. And every, whenever we went there, we would go to this card store and this card store had a a magic shop in the back. And this was like my favorite place in the world to be. And these guys that worked there, I can't imagine this being an actual real job today, but for some reason they were able to pay people to teach and sell magic tricks. It was very fascinating to me. I know this is kind of dumb. Stay with me for a minute. Um, but I feel like when it comes to magic tricks, you have three different types of people in the observation category. You've got the figure it outers, right? Like the oh, it's up his sleeve or it's over there or he didn't do that for real or there's a string or you know, the people that have to like di- dissect and deconstruct every trick to make sure that they have it all figured out. So there's those people. There's the don't carers. They're like, this is the dumbest thing in the world. Why am I watching a child a child's trick here? Why are we talking about magic? And then there's other people that have this like kind of wide-eyed wonder and just love the fact that they're being amazed by something that is terribly amazing. In um, another weird thing about our life, we got married at a zoo, which is kind of strange. Um, and at our zoo wedding, we had a magician, just because we had a good friend who was an amazing, like a very accomplished magician. And so he just worked the crowd and like did magic tricks and stuff like that. It was very bizarre, but. He was an amazing magician. He used to do this trick. I don't know how he did this, but he uh, was—he somehow in the middle of the trick, it would be a normal card trick, and then he would pop an empty card deck and a lime would come out of it. And then he would cut the lime open with a knife from his pocket and open up the lime, and your card would be rolled up on the inside of the lime. It was amazing. It was dumbfounding to anyone that ever witnessed this trick. And if you try to figure it out, I think you wasted the opportunity to be amazed at this particular feat. And I think, I think that, that we can actually approach the Bible in these same three ways. I think we can be a figure-it-outer, somebody that has to explain everything, rationalize everything, put it all in a nice, neat little box so that we can make sure that we understand every little piece. You can be a don't-carer. Very little interest, doesn't really matter what you're talking about. These stories don't really mean much. Or you've maybe heard them so many times they have very little meaning to you anymore. We start to take things for granted. Or we could be wide-eyed wonderers, people that just get amazed at some of the things that God does and says and just marvel at some of the stories in the Bible. And so today I want to pull on that little thread of mystery and enter into a narrative that I think kind of fits this description that we easily take for granted Something that we can easily just do and not always grasp all of the depth and the historical context and the connection to the larger story of what's going on. And it's this idea of communion and what we do together when we celebrate communion at what we often call the table or the communion table. Um, So we're going to talk about communion for a little bit and press into some deeper meaning and connection. And the idea today is you ever like hear a song and it takes you back to a time or you smell something and it instantly like reminds you of a bunch of things. That's what I want to do with this today. I want this to be a story that we can build a little bit of a narrative for, some mental furniture, so that the next time we enter into a time of communion, it maybe conjures up something. It kind of brings to mind and to your memory some ideas or some things. So I think communion is the thing that we can easily kind of just do and take for granted, maybe appreciate it, but don't always have the space to consider some of the context, some of the mystery And think about how it all ties together. And it's definitely mysterious. There are some downright weird things in the Bible and some weird things that Jesus said, and we don't always talk about it. Um, So let me demonstrate one of those. This is, um, so Jesus, who, look, if you're not a Christian, probably still can be regarded as one of the greatest teachers and philosophers of all time, Most people outside of Christianity would agree with the fact that he was an amazing prophet, that he did great great good in the world, modeled an amazing way to live. And somehow, he's also the son of God to those of us who are in the faith, fully God and fully human, which is very mysterious on its own, but we don't have time to go into that today. So we're trying to follow Jesus as a community of faith, honor him, do what he says, but in the Gospel of John, at the end of a really long and very colorful discussion that he has with some religious folks of that day, he says this. This is in John six, fifty-three to 60. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue. He's preaching in a church and says this, This is my favorite, one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. On hearing it, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. (laughs) Who can accept it? Yeah, I feel you. First of all, gross. Second of all, what the heck are you talking about? Like, this is a very bizarre thing to say from a platform in a church, in a synagogue, as a teaching moment, right? How do you do that and drop the mic and just walk off and it's like, oh yeah, sure, this guy's a great prophet. This guy is absolutely bananas. So what is he talking about? And hopefully, we all intuitively know, let's pray, that Jesus is actually talking about something other than like interview with the vampire style, eating him and drinking his blood. He's using metaphor and nuance to talk about something else. He's using imagery of older things that have demonstrated something that we hear about and see all over the Bible and what Bible scholars often refer to as like types and shadows. They are... Symbols and metaphors and lesser things that point to greater things. That point to a deeper past and a future reality that is so much bigger than what is currently being highlighted. And so, to understand this current practice of communion, we have to go back and look at some really ancient stories. Some historical and frankly mysterious narratives that involve blood and rituals and very rich symbolism and prophecy and ancient documents it sounds like a national treasure movie to me. And so I want to do that together, go on this journey and allow ourselves to participate in a little bit more mystery than maybe we normally do to allow you know our western my western rational and intellectual mind that wants to box everything in and understand everything. And so you know, we are meant to read ourselves and see ourselves in these stories and understand how our stories today Overlap with these stories, and these stories are not empty and distant, abstract outside of our modern day. We're invited to enter into them, and I want to invite you to do that today. So, this isn't going to be like a typical sermon where I have a bunch of points that you're going to write down and you're going to leave with a call to action and all that stuff. This is going to be a little bit more kind of narrative and tying some pieces together, hopefully to weave into the fabric of our lives this story that has richness and meaning that we don't always give ourselves the time when we're talking about communion to really understand. So, primarily, we're going to enter this narrative of the Passover. But before we get to that, we have to talk some blood in a different place. And, um, you know, I figure it's fitting since we're always talking about and singing about blood and not talking about why. It's just a weird thing that we all kind of accept that we do. So let's go back to the very, very beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? So this is where everything starts, the genesis of creation, the genesis of um, the human story. And so God creates the world. He creates man and woman to live in this garden. And then in Genesis 2.25, it says that the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed, And it's important to understand that God is actually with them in the garden. It's Adam and Eve and God. And so this is where he gave them instructions to be fruitful and multiply. And so naked, unashamed, fully vulnerable, fully known, fully connected to each other and to God, God is present with them. And then, as most of us know, things go sideways. Adam and Eve go against God's directive and things forever change. And it says that in Genesis 3-7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew all of a sudden that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's even more striking to me is what we find in the next verse is that they, Genesis 3-8 says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So they hid themselves from God's presence. So their sin, their rebellion caused a separation for them to not actually be able to be in God's presence any longer. And so following this, God actually has a series of curses that he pronounces on on humankind and that all of creation as a result of this sin is going to have some difficulty because of their mistrust of God's command. And then something interesting happens in verse 21 of chapter 4. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Why would he do that? Everybody knows about the fig leaves, right? They're already clothed. Why make garments of skin? And here's where we get our first glimpse, albeit uh, a little abstractly, of the cost of sin. Adam and Eve's sin cost something its life. And this is the first time that an animal has died in the garden. And I am sure that that significance was not lost on Adam and Eve. And so it's here that we see God enact this practice of making things right between him and his people by allowing something to die as a substitute for the sin of the people. And by this he's making them at one with himself again. Or atoning at one the animal covers over the debt and atones for the sin of the humans. And this is a type or a shadow of a future substitution that's going to come. And this is the installation of a very mysterious practice of animal sacrifice. So for now, the sin has caused a disconnection between Adam and Eve and God, and they're banished from the garden forever, and now death has entered the scene, and as a result, all of humankind is cursed, And chief among this curse is a separation from God and his presence. And so we see that the cost of sin and the price of forgiveness is actually incredibly high. Something has to pay with its life and there will be a separation from God's presence. So Adam and Eve start banished from the, they're banished from the garden. They start living their lives. They're multiplying. It's clear by all the stories of their offspring and all of the offspring all the way down to 2019. There's issues, lots and lots of issues. And so while Adam and Eve are procreating and the generations are moving, God's presence is no longer dwelling with his people. But God is still at work. Generations are passing, thousands potentially of years. People are, you know, living for hundreds and hundreds of years back then, apparently, like Gandalf style. No idea. It's mysterious. We don't have time for that either. So God singles out a a people through Abraham, chooses him to father an entire people group that becomes the nation of Israel. But remember, God's presence is not actively dwelling with the people until the time of Moses. And this is where we're introduced to the Passover meal. So, are you guys still with me? All right, I know this is obscure. It's going to get worse. So, over time, through choices, where they were, through external circumstances, the people of God, the Israelites, find themselves trapped, radically enslaved, oppressed, beat down with no hope, they're crushed, and they are slaves in the nation of Egypt. So, sidebar, as we're thinking about how these stories overlap with ours, feel free at any time to relate to any of the people that you see in these stories. So, their identity is lost. They only have this identity of being slaves with no hope and no value and no future. And then finally... God intervenes. He sends a deliverer, a guy by the name of Moses, who is a type or a shadow, a type of Christ. He is then a representative of the people that goes to the chief oppressor and secures the rescue and the exodus of the people from the hand of Pharaoh, but not without a lot of mystery. And on Pharaoh's side, a little bit of magic. And then it crescendos in this incredible symbolism. There's plagues. This is where you get these crazy plagues. At one point, what's weird about this story to me is that at the first few plagues that he puts out there, Pharaoh summons in his magicians, and they're able to do them. This is weird to me. This has nothing to do with my story. This is just like a—there's magic and weird stuff in the Bible, too. At one point, like, Aaron throws his staff down and becomes a snake. Pharaoh's like, my guys can do that. They throw their sticks down, and they become snakes, and then one snake eats the other. It's weird stuff. Anyways, moving on. So just imagine there's like they're turning the entire water system in the entire country to blood. They're calling up frogs to cover the entire surface of everything that's around. Locusts are swarming in and eating every single. P- imagine what it would have been like to be there, to be witnessing God miraculously act on behalf of of you while your little tribe in the corner is fine. I mean, this is like the stuff of my dreams. Like everyone that I don't like gets crushed and I'm fine. Like, but through these ridiculously crazy plagues and stuff, i like, this is the stuff I, I am I the, am I the weird one? I dream about this stuff. Okay. Maybe not. Okay. So then there comes this last sign and plague, the final devastating blow that God's going to deliver to Egypt so that his people will be released. And so with fear and trembling and confusion, God's people are told to get ready. So we're going to pick up that story in Exodus 11. And this is what Moses tells to Pharaoh. It says, Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family of Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour, Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt. A wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So they're supposed to pack their things, get ready for a rescue, And then they're supposed to prepare a meal, a really specific meal. And at this meal, at this event, this is going to redefine every single thing about them as a people. And they are going to carry this meal and this symbolism with them forever. Until today, we are still celebrating the Passover meal. So this is what happens in Exodus 12. This is one ish through 30 ish. We're going to bounce around a little bit. So I'm going to read you a bunch of stuff. Stay with me. So while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family will choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. Then verse 5, it says, the animal that you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter the lamb or young goat at twilight. And now they're supposed to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and then the top of the doorframe of the houses where they eat the animal the sides, and the top. And that same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. The bitter salad was about remembering the bitterness of what they were leaving. And then the bread without yeast is the haste with which they were going to be removed from this. They didn't even have time for the bread to bake, so it needed to be quick bake no-rise bread. So, these are the instructions for actually eating the meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign. Marking the houses where you are staying. When I see this blood, I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then in verse 14, it says, this is a day to remember each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. Celebrate, this is 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate it from this day, generation to generation, constantly. So then, verse 24, remember these instructions are a permanent law. Does this mean it matters to God that they keep doing this? I feel like there's a bit of repetition here. That you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land that the Lord has promised to give you, and you're not in this terrible situation anymore, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Why? Because your children will ask, what does this mean? And you will reply, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. So continuing on, it says, So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of the livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials... And all the people of Egypt woke up that night and a loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. This is very intense. But this is very pivotal. And this event, them being rescued from slavery, was the key defining event in all of Israel's history. God, the powerful deliverer, brings them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then, after this great event, God establishes his covenant with his people and his presence returns. This is what it says in Exodus 19. It says, you have seen what I've done to the Egyptians and you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So he establishes this covenant with them. And then comes a structure for how to adhere to the covenant. There's the Ten Commandments, the directives for how to treat people and what happens when you disregard the laws. There's directions for celebrations and festivals like this Passover celebration. Um, and then everybody lives happily ever after and there's nothing else that to the story, which is not true. So the people still have issues, but God's presence is now back. They've erected a tabernacle, a church where God's presence can now dwell with the people. And we have priests that are keeping this place holy by doing sacrifices on behalf of the people to keep them right with God. And there's lots more stuff about blood. There's sprinkling blood on altars and on people and on things as a representation of purification. Why the blood? Because blood was a symbol of life. That's why they were using the lifeblood of an animal to offer purity and purify life and cleanse people symbolically to restore life and connection to the presence between God and his people. And we see generation after generation where things, even though this is all happening, are continuing to go sideways. I mean, while Moses is getting the covenant from people, the people go bonkers and start worshiping a golden calf during that, like right away. So even in the midst of all that, we hear God proclaim himself to Moses to be this way. This is what he says in Exodus 34 about himself. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Why would he do that? How could he do that? How is it that the death of animals and their blood can satisfy the wrong that people have done to the continual breaking of God's covenant? All the sin, all the brokenness, all the injustice, all the disconnection. And he can do it because this entire process and system of sacrifice and purification was a shadow of something else to come. It was pointing to something bigger. Everything one day will change. And God is constantly looking ahead to that something new. And he's sending people to actually tell them about it. We've got prophecies in the Bible. 600 years before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah says this, pointing to a time that's coming. This is in Jeremiah 31. He says, "'The day is coming,' says the Lord." when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loved his wife. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins and even earlier than that about 700 years BC the prophet Isaiah delivers a prophecy about someone who is to come a person who who is destined to be the thing that the previous types and shadows were referring to. So he says this of a coming savior, 700 years BC, Isaiah 53 says, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly and yet never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And then shortly after all of this, God goes silent. For 600 years, there's no prophets, there's no signs, there's no wonders, there's no communication. Nothing. Until. God chooses presence in an entirely different form. He shows up in a person. God, as a human. Totally mysterious. Why human? Well, because he needed to be human to do what it was that he came to do. This is how they say it in Hebrews 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And so at the age of a little bit more than 30 years old, on the night that he knows that he's going to be arrested and put on a pathway that will ultimately result in his very brutal death, Jesus is with his closest friends, his disciples, and they're eating a Passover, the annual meal that's celebrated for centuries and centuries and centuries that reminds them of who they are and where they came from. This meal that is taught generation by generation, to place themselves in the story and understand ancestrally that they were there. And then they are to eat this lamb, remembering the blood that's placed on the doorposts and on the top of the door that guarantees their protection and marks them as God's covenant people. They're to eat those bitter herbs to remember how bad it was. And the bitterness of their oppression and their slavery. And they're to eat this unleavened bread that is a reminder that even this most common ingredient didn't have the time to rise because of the swiftness of how God acted and the seriousness of that original Passover. And so on that night, Jesus starts something new. He knows what's coming. And he knows that this Passover meal was talking about him. And in a very symbolic, deeply profound, and I am sure utterly confusing way, he starts a brand new tradition. It says in Luke 22 that he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples saying, This is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So he takes that unleavened bread and he says, this bread now represents me, my body. And as I break it and as I tear it, as you soon will understand and see, I want you to remember my body, which is going to be broken for you. And this cup of wine, we will no longer look for the blood of a lamb to protect your home. I am that lamb. This was always talking about me. And so it's my blood that's going to be shed and poured out, and placed over the doorposts of your heart. This is the brand new covenant. I am the one that rescues you from the slavery and the bondage of your life. I am the new representation of Adam. You are all now a descendant of me, so generations of wholeness, not brokenness, are going to come from my line. Before, you looked to an external covenant with rules and laws that was sealed outside by the blood of animals. Now, you're going to look to an internal covenant of love and freedom sealed by my blood on the inside. Before, you looked to a law written on stone and paper, and now you will look to a law written on your heart. Before, you celebrated annually a historical event in the past With your ancestors, and now I'm inviting you to regularly and continually celebrate this new historical event that has happened, and then look ahead to what is happening with you and every person that comes after you because of this. And that is what we're celebrating at the communion table. We celebrate and remember the God of the both and, the past and the present the present and the future, broken and whole, victory and sorrow. And we use these super common elements that we can find just about anywhere. And we're invited to remember, to place ourselves in the story and remember the past that Jesus endured, to remember our own past, our own bondage, and then because of Jesus, our own deliverance. And we're invited to experience or re-experience it for the first time, every time, in this new ritual that he instates, one that is steeped in mystery and symbolism and wonder, and we're invited to come, whomever we are, wherever we are, in joy or in sorrow, in celebration or in mourning. We're invited to wonder at the magnitude of God and his story that he has been telling for all time, woven into our story. This story that's for the whole world and yet incredibly personal. And that's what we're invited to remember as we participate and partake in communion together. And so we're going to do that together. So the team's gonna come down here and they're gonna pass some elements. And so you can hang on to the piece of bread and the cup and we're gonna sing just a little bit and I invite you to just kind of reflect and ponder and think about this and allow yourself to kind of experience the story and I will come back up and lead us through the taking of the elements together.